You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome to Skylight. This is the Skylight Books Podcast, and I'm your host, Lance Morgan. Today, I'm so excited to have Marlon B. Ross to talk about his new book, Sissy Insurgencies, A Racial Anatomy of Unfit Manliness. Marlon B. Ross is professor of English at the University of Virginia and author of Manning the Race, Reforming Black Men in the Jim Crow Era and the Contours of Masculine Desire, Romanticism and the Rise of Women's Poetry. Marlon, it's so great to have you on. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for the invitation. No, it's a pleasure. I mean, this book just spoke to me in a way that I was like, I need to get him on the podcast. <laughs> um, so you have a reading for us today? Yes, I do. Thank you. I'll let you take it away. Okay. This is from the introduction uh, as the first chapter, introductory chapter to the book. At the culmination of my high school academic career, I was privately instructed by my principal how to perform a manly handshake. It was the day of the annual awards ceremony in which academic medals would be bestowed on deserving students in a public ritual celebrated in the school's gym. Each time as I trekked up to receive yet another award, my chest swelled with pride and anticipation. Little did I know that my crowning achievement as a high schooler would be dashed immediately after the ceremony by none less than the principal who had so many times shook my right hand in congratulation for a stunning career. Afterward, as the gym emptied and seniors whooped and hollered in recognition that school days were really coming to an end, the principal beckoned me over with his index finger, expecting yet another pat on the back. Instead, I got a deflating lesson in manliness. As you enter the big world, he said in a tone low enough to ensure that only I could hear, you need to know how to shake hands like a man. You cannot succeed with that limp handshake of yours. He then coached me in the ritual of the manly handshake by having me repeat several times, grabbing his hand firmly, aggressively even, practicing one swift unyielding hold, not too long, with an instant decisive release. I could not avoid the suspicion that his coaching had the tincture of racial animus. Whatever his motivation, my reaction was certain as my chest deflated in unmanly embarrassment and I felt myself shrinking away from him with my proverbial tail between my legs. I felt as though I had been privately called out as that which I had successfully evaded for my four high school years, a sissy boy, not quite fit or equipped for, as he put it, the big world that awaited me. Far too self-conscious of my physical comportment, I guarded mightily against effeminate mannerisms although it was not always easy to see how I appeared to others or to know exactly what counted as unboyish in a desegregating school system. In high school, one of my white male classmates, one of my football team members casually observed that I carried my books like a girl, 
hugging them up close to my chest rather than wielding them low at my side. It only took one offhand comment. Though offhand, so to speak, the comment itself highlights how closely surveilled a boy's demeanor is, not only to a school principal, but also to other boys and girls. Because appropriate gender conduct within the masculine is so fugitive, so hard to pin down, its informal rules are especially draconian, subject to punishment on the slightest misprision. Carrying my books close to the chest seemed convenient and natural, perhaps even visceral to me, especially given my penchant for toting around so many books at once before the popularity of the backpack. In fact, the boyish way of carrying books, swinging them in the in the hand at the side as though a weapon in waiting seems in retrospect to indicate that no boy should carry so many books as to need to hook them at the chest. Once this habit of book carrying was mentioned to me, however, I recognize how even such a slight gesture harbored the potential for gender shaming. I could easily, if subconsciously, change my book carrying conduct, but I could not diminish the very subconsciousness that caused my sense of doubt about my masculine fitness. What had been an unconscious habit all of a sudden became a calculated performance that defined my chastened conduct as I sought to remember the proper book carrying form. For sure, race clouds the question of how boys and men are perceived socially in regard to masculine conformity. Um, while racial gender stereotyping projects onto black maleness some attributes as overly legible, it necessarily also projects other attributes as illegible. If black boys are supposed to be cool to the point of overly phallic hardness, what does it mean when a black boy carries his books like a girl or not enough like a boy? The sometimes subtle sometimes blunt racialization that configures sissy signification in US culture can help us decipher the non-conforming dynamics that obtain in masculine conduct and character more generally. Like sissies, black men have historically been relegated to gender non-conformity and non-standard sexuality. The persistent gender roles that dominant society has foisted onto black manhood have emphasized either masculine overdrive, the buck, or unmanly servitude, the Uncle Tom, either hypermascularity, natural athleticism, or extraordinary resources of seductive expression in oratory and music. When the black sissy has appeared in dominant mass culture, he is invariably nothing more than a mockery of black men's animal mas masculinity. An exception that proves the rule, a gender joke whose appearance abets the anxiety and fear that are fueled by black men's overly masculine prowess. Within African-American culture, however, sissies are everywhere once we begin to look. The history of racial and sexual oppression has forced black men to take seriously the question of masculine incompetence, perhaps to a point of heightened and deepened self-awareness of the high stakes involved in conforming to white supremacy's conventions of masculine conduct. Sissification is just one way, but a crucial one, that African-American men have negotiated the multiple binds of a coercive Black masculinity, suppressed in its potential kinship with white male supremacy, beckoning toward alternative tenors of manliness, even while trapped by the domains of empowerment that a hard masculinity insistently promises.
I what a <laughs> there was so much from that reading that I was like, ooh, yeah, yep, yep, <laughs> yep, been there, been there. Um, Marlon, thank you again for coming on. Sure. Um, uh, how are you doing this afternoon? Yeah, it's afternoon yes. time. I'm doing great. It's a beautiful day and I feel, despite what's going on in the world, I feel pretty good. <laughs> and there's so much, right? Um, yeah. But no, we gotta, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, a great day for this interview. I mean, it's beautiful on both coasts, I guess. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, to start off talking about your book, there's so much here that I just, that I just connected with while reading it. It just, in the sense of like, you know, how Black men are raised and, you know, Black men are raised and brought up and taught about mm -hmm. masculinity. But even the other side where like Black women are like also, you know, affected by this too. The, mm -hmm. the, 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 maybe the toxicity or the, the forced, you know, position men are put in or forced mm -hmm. women to be put in the side too. Did this like, I mean, I'm in. You talk about your own childhood with this. Do you think this book has been like something that you've been wanting to explore for a while because of you know your upbringing with this? Um, actually, I for I, I was I was not trained uh, in in terms of my academic uh, profile in African American uh, studies. Mm -hmm. uh, my original training was in. Uh, British Romantic Studies. And so for a long time in my early academic career, I didn't even write about African-American um, experience or history, but uh, I was asked to do an essay many years ago on Black masculinity and it became a subject I couldn't avoid. <laughs> and so I, when I started publishing on it, I started noticing um, I started noticing in my own work this interest that was sort of un unconscious or subconscious, and that is this interest in gender nonconformity uh, mm -hmm. among African-American men, especially. Mm -hmm. And um, it, when after I had completed Manning the Race, uh, my second book, um, I had some material that I wanted to do more with, and that's what led me to this uh, particular particular subject, um, especially some work I had done on Booker T. Washington as um, as a nonconforming uh, uh, black male leader, and I had also published um, an essay on a trend that is has been enveloped into the book, the trend of. Uh, what I call the straight black sissy, um, for, based on some autobiographies that were written in the 1990s by black male intellectuals, where I noticed this trend where uh, um, so many of them were coming out as sissy, but not gay. So mm -hmm. That, you know, the beginning of the century with Booker T. Washington, the end of the century with these straight black sissies, I thought, hmm, there's a history here, that, a cultural history that I need to explore. And that's how I came about it. But once I began to write about it, I felt it was, um, 
intellectually dishonest, let's say, not to put myself in the picture. So that's why I begin with this autobiographical section. In the original book, I had much more autobiography, but I decided to take much of it out in order to keep keep it as a sort of intellectual history. Right. And I mean, yeah, I bet the compulsion to, you know, put yourself, because like, I mean, in a book like this, a lot of people probably uh, will read it and say, oh, I see myself in this. So mm-hmm. I can imagine, you know, writing it, you probably had that same thought. Yes, absolutely. Um, it must have been. I mean, it sounds like you have, though, a perfect uh, platform for a future autobiography. I'm saying, I don't know. <laughs> um, I listen, if I'm pitching that to your public, the publishers out there right now, pick it up, pick up this idea. Cause I mean, it sounds like it's there. Um, no, I mean, how though, you know, looking through, looking through the past through this book too, and like the past of all, a lot of these notable figures and, mm-hmm. you know, people that everyone knows and a lot of people um were affected by and looked up to did it like did it uncover a lot about you know the community of black the community of black people and black men specifically mm-hmm. for you a- absolutely it provided a whole other angle on um let's say the roll call of especially mm-hmm. of black male leaders Uh, across the 20th and into the 21st century. Um, Once I I realized that Booker T. Washington was attacked in his time as being gender non-conforming by other black male leaders, especially W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Mm. I thought, hmm, you know, this this provides a different angle on his, on our attitude toward Booker T. Washington. It helps us to understand perhaps one of the reasons why Booker T. Washington has remained kind of under a cloud as a leader uh, for for so many decades. Uh, He was the most powerful African-American from the the period from the 1890s through his death in 1915. There is no no one comes close, not even Du Bois. and uh, and so I, the question the question I had was, you know, is it is it just his policy? Is it just his policy of accommodation to Jim Crow, which was, as we know, not what he really felt. It was mm-hmm. it was a strategy. Uh, right. I thought there was more going on, and I think this notion that Du Bois attacked him with publicly of what Du Bois called unmanning the race, right? That he was unmanning the race Mm in what he was doing, I think was part of the cloud over the legacy of his leadership. And then when I look toward um, the middle of the century, it seemed very interesting to me that uh, Malcolm X attacked um, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. in a very similar way, when he says, it's not right for a Black man to put women and children on the front line of the race war. It's a similar mm-hmm. kind, even though they're not using the word, neither one used the word sissy, they are punking, to use a current term, these, these other Black male leaders calling out their gender 
nonconformity, their perception mm -hmm. of gender nonconformity as a way of questioning their right to lead the race. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that probably like, you know, had ripple effects throughout, I mean, to the present day, right? You yeah, know, absolutely. It just, it's incredible to see that, um, you know, mapped out. And like, you know, it's actually really funny right now, the book I'm reading and listeners, you should take note of this. I mean, also when you're buying, when you go by the sissy insurgencies, you should also, you know, look at this one. Um, uh, Bell Hooks is um, The Will to Change is what I'm reading right now. And like, I was thinking about it last night. I was like, there's a lot of, I mean, uh, of course there's a lot of like crossovers with I think your book in this in that book but just like you know the power of the patriarchy and all of this to like yes just the power <laughs> the power of the patriarchy I think fuels you know a lot of these texts and how you know a lot of um these noble figures had to like mm -hmm. go through the world do you have do, how do you think that factors in to your book and to the research you did to this, in this book? Uh, absolutely, it factors in. Um, you, when you consider, for example, that W.E.B. Du Bois was uh, one of the early supporters of women's suffrage and considered himself a feminist in, as it was defined during mm -hmm. the early 20th century, um, but, but what, but his attack on, uh, what his attack on Washington, Booker T. Washington indicates is that um, the, the operation, the ideology of patriarchy is so strong, not only for ruling white men, but for African-American men seeking to lead the race as it was thought of in that period. Uh, it is so this notion of patriarchy is so strong that it could even overcome, so to speak, Du Bois's own feminist impulse and feminist agenda when it mm -hmm. came to attacking another male, male leader. By the way, Booker T. Washington was very aware of this strategy, this particular strategy. And in a private letter, um, that he, he called it men hysteria, mascul masculinity hysteria, the attacks that they were using wow. against him. But notably, he never says this publicly because mm -hmm. he's very calculated in the way that he knows that what the white male governing structure is looking at his every word. And so he's very careful not to bring this dispute among African-Americans uh, to the forefront. Uh, I would say one more thing here as an example, uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett, one of the greatest uh, champions of African-American liberation who has ever existed, you at, as a woman and as a strong feminist used the same kind of attack against Booker T. Washington. She used the same kind of language, the same kind of, let's say, patriarchal infused language that mm -hmm. W.B. Du Bois used, even though she's a woman and right. a woman who had been blocked from becoming um, uh, one of the founders of the NAACP because of her strong Black woman's agenda, which 
troubled in a variety of ways some of the white founders of the NAACP. I mean, I could only imagine, right? I, <laughs> that that comes as a little surprise to me. But like even, but what you're saying about like, you know, women supporting the patriarchy in that way too, there's, I mean, one, there's a lot of talk about that in uh, Bell Hooks' book too, The Will to yes. Change. But I mean, it's just, it's so prominent in that history too. There's, you know, both women and men, um, they supported that idea. They supported that, um that's what i'm looking for they support they supported the patriarchy they support yeah. they they because they, it was it made sense to at that time you know the patriarchy the way the way in was to you know copy that you know copy mm-hmm. the what is it the, the way things have always been to like up, yes uphold that so they can find their way in which mean i mean the language of that is new uh, new doesn't feel like the right word but like we've 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 come up with more language to you know express that idea and like we it's it's hopefully changing yes (laughs) it's hopefully changing i hopefully hopefully um the i the next thing i want to talk about is i mean i when i one thing about your book that one person you talk about in your book who is one of my favorite like figures in literature and you know uh political not politics but like in uh just culture is James Baldwin mm-hmm. and you talk about him a lot in this book which makes sense because you know he was an openly queer and very outspoken um f- man in his writing and his um his writing his speeches his uh essays his in interviews and all of these things he just was very forward with that but i feel like you don't you don't pull punches with him too in a way to say it um can you talk about like your research into him as a figure absolutely um i it was clear to me from the outset that james baldwin had to be the central chapter in this history, Uh, even though the larger uh, study uh, argues that we have to, to to some extent, separate the notion of the sissy or non-conforming gender conduct from the homosexual, because the conflation of the two um, kind of mass Uh, some of the psychological, emotional, and ideological operation of of gender. I do think, I I thought it was important to include a figure, to include James Baldwin as a a figure who was attacked as a sissy, um, as a a shorthand for attacking him as a homosexual uh, during his time, especially in the, the, era, the period of the mid-1960s. James Baldwin, I would say, is um, the most, uh, was the most visible Black queer spokesman for the race, and I use those gender terms on purpose, um, during the period of the 1960s into the early 70s. Um, the fact that he was able to exploit this platform um, during the civil rights era 
mm-hmm. even though he had already established uh, publicly his own um, homosexuality uh, with the publication of his second novel, Giovanni's Room, mm-hmm. uh, in 1956, and, and other and autobiographical uh, work that he had published, he was still able to be an extremely effective uh, spokesperson on behalf of the civil rights movement. So I wanted to look at that irony. I wanted to look at how he negotiated his sissiness publicly, mm-hmm. not just in his writing where he talks about it, but also on the world stage, especially in the new televisual media, uh, where he was um, one of the first television public inter- intellectuals um, in the in the early 1960s. He's everywhere on um, on interview shows on television. He is, uh, you know, giving speeches. He had the famous uh, Cambridge University Union. Um, debate uh, mm-hmm. with William uh, with with William F. Buckley uh, in 1965, and all of this exposed him his sissy conduct, his sissy uh, bodily manner to a global public in their living room, so to speak, as you know, mm-hmm. television as this first medium that beamed the image into the, the living room of, 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 of people all, all over the world. Right. Uh, and so I wanted to explore that, that interesting dynamic of a person who is, who is um, sissified in his bodily conduct, who is at the same time, taken seriously because of the power of his sissy voice uh, for as a leading spokesperson for this this galvanizing movement of the 1950s and 60s. And I mean, you talk about one of my favorite books, Giovanni's Room, which is, you know, a book I, I adore. But in that book, though, he at the end of that book, which again, adore that book it seems like he kind of what's the word I'm looking for he kind of talks down to you know the idea of a sissy of a man um not conforming to like masculine roles um I don't know if you remember in the book with the character Giovanni um after the after the main character leaves Giovanni, Giovanni becomes more effeminate in his uh, in his uh, mannerisms and mm-hmm. is do, and is all that. And it's it the main the main character kind of you know treats it as a negative thing on Giovanni as like uh, oh he became that because of how our relationship ended. In a way that I wonder, does James Baldwin did he have to do that to like you know get the get did he have to like sacrifice the part of that to get his message out and is that okay did he kind of take make some sacrifices in his own like idea of masculinity and to get to move forward Mm -hmm. and how does that how does that factor in you know what I mean yes uh that's a great question uh I would say uh, Baldwin rarely made compromises, um, mm. and this is complicated. Let's see if I can work through it. Um, in his first novel, 
uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain, he mm -hmm. did change the ending of the book um, to, uh, he took out a more um, pronounced uh, expression of the protagonist coming out of the closet. And he changed that. It's the book is. I actually argued that it's actually a more effective ending to leave um, John Grimes, the protagonist of that first novel, on the mm -hmm. threshold of his uh, sexual awakening. But in the second novel, Giovanni's Room, I actually have a slightly different take on what happens there with mm -hmm. the, the protagonist David and Giovanni, the love interest. Um, mm -hmm. You're absolutely, I agree with you. Giovanni's mannerisms change after the breakup. Yeah. His, mannerism, his mannerisms change because he is forced into a role of mm -hmm. the, what would at the time be called the pansy in order to survive economically. And this mm -hmm. is what Baldwin is investigating. The way in which gender uh, identity, gender performance Mm -hmm. uh, correlates with uh, economic necessity. Uh, he's mm -hmm. now basically, um, he's a hustler on the streets um, mm -hmm. at that moment because that's the only way he can survive. And um, when he meets, um, when he meets David, the, the, the protagonist, and David notes this, but I think that Baldwin, Baldwin is actually attacking David's um, mm. David, David's very uh, quick judgment of Giovanni mm. because right. David is responsible for that. David mm. is the one responsible. David, I don't want to get too much of the weeds of the novel, but I, I, I would right. just point out that David has access to money. Mm -hmm. He knows that Giovanni is in, in desperate straits when he's lost his job. Mm -hmm. And he's lost his job because he's being sexually harassed by the owner of the bar. Mm -hmm. David refuses to provide any money for Giovanni, even after he learns that Giovanni is in desperate straits. David instead decides he will use the money to join the white supremacist patriarchy by marrying mm -hmm. this woman and going back to America. Yeah. So... Um, David, who has a very strong uh, self-contempt for his own sexuality and guards mm -hmm. against any sign of sissification, is the one who I think is being critiqued in that moment for mm -hmm. his uh, narcissism in not coming to Giovanni's aid uh, and distancing himself further from Giovanni because Giovanni, who at the beginning is seen as masculine by everyone in the bar and therefore mm -hmm. more attractive, at the end has resorted to a behavior that allows him to survive economically. And this makes David even more contemptuous of Giovanni when in fact, David is partly responsible for the state that Giovanni is in. That, yeah. That's just my reading of what happens. No, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I like, I, um, yeah, I see that. I see that um, now in reading, now in like thinking back too, it's just like, yeah, it probably is a critique on David who 
doesn't even win at the end because doesn't his no. yeah he does not win at the end either no. i mean it's ooh yeah no i'm gonna sit with that for a second well, now. may i point out one more thing about that oh, yes, about yes. Oh, at the end of that novel yes please I, I would say that baldwin is so far of his head of head of his time in terms of his understanding of of gender mm-hmm. um because um in first of all putting the narrative in the voice of this self-hating homosexual, um, he forces us to understand the psychology sort of from within its uh, problematic (laughs) um, frame of reference. And Mm -hmm. so I agree, he does not win at the end. At the end, the, the woman he has proposed to has left him because she's discovered his cheating with another man and and he he he's returning to america to try to become you know to become the white male heteronormative um leader that he thinks he needs to be but Mm -hmm. we are totally unsure that he can fulfill that because he's so unhappy he's miserable at the end in this facade of heteronormativity and hard masculinity that he's tried to take on. So so Baldwin, who, you know, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for a critique of Baldwin, there is. Um, (laughs) But but I think in that regard, he was very prescient and Mm -hmm. prophetic, I would say, and Mm -hmm. gave us a lot of the understanding that we, we actually have today about things like uh, the gender spectrum and uh, the the uh, and gender fluidity and uh, uh, and the fluidity of sexuality. No, I mean a lot to ruminate on there, and like now to I mean in a good way to recontextualize the ending of a book I love. So thank you for that. <laughs> thank you, I appreciate that. Um, the last thing I want to talk to you about is you know, kind of personal with this book, how like, you know, after, while writing it and after writing it, did you have to like, you know, reflect on your own past and your own history? Um, and, you know, people around you um, mm-hmm. after writing about this subject, you kind of talk about it in the autobiography section, but like, mm-hmm. you know, in a more, in a more self-ruminating way, like if it was, did it have like any therapeutic meaning for you? Mm-hmm. Um, that's interesting. I had I hadn't thought about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it definitely uh, sent me back to um, episodes in my past life, uh, mm-hmm. as I talk about, especially even beyond high school. It sent me back to uh, elementary school, to my mm-hmm. first crush. <laughs> to my first crush and mm-hmm. of uh, my first crush on an, on an, another student when I was in first grade and my right. crush on my fifth grade male teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. And it, yeah. it led me to think about uh, it. I think mainly how it uh, created uh, some self-reflection on my part had to do with uh, what I call um, a bodily comportment about mm-hmm. my own um, doubts or insecurities about um, the way, my, about my voice. I've always had a, a, yeah. a bit of, 
of a, <laughs> a bit of a discomfort about my voice when I hear it playback. I know that's true about a lot of people, but I hear the sissiness in my voice when I play things back. Oh, I have that too. <laughs> I, I 100% have that too. And, and so I'm trying to, uh, after writing the book and thinking about the importance of, of voice in the perception of sissiness and in the, mm-hmm. the, in the, um, in the stigmatizing of the sissy, um, I, I'm, I'm trying to embrace my voice more, let's put it that way, yeah. <laughs> embrace the sissiness of my voice more as just one aspect of, of my subjectivity. So mm-hmm. in that way, I would say I, I, have, I, have, I have reflected on um, what I was uh, analyzing in this book. And I, but I, I think that I, there's a lot more reflection that can be done in terms of my, my own um, uh, uh, self-narrative. Um, but I'm going to put that aside for, for the moment now that the book is done um, mm-hmm. and, and turn to other, uh, to other things that, that are not um, as that do not have an autobiographical component. Though I would say in all, all good scholarship, all good scholarship is motivated by the personal, even yeah. if it's not explicitly expressed that way. I, I think um, it's, it's important to for any scholar to recognize the ways in which his or her personal um, experience is, is shaping whatever, whatever is being uh, investigated. And I mean, yeah, what you're saying about, yeah, that I, I, you know, there's a little bit of yourself in everything you do. There's a little bit of yourself in everything you do. But like, even you reflecting on, you know, your past and your relationships to different people and how that, I mean, I've definitely had that where I look back and I'm just like, well, uh, as looking back on that friendship, I might have thought of that as something else or, yeah. This relationship to this person, to this person I looked up to, was that a, was yeah. that because I looked up to them only? You know, there's there's yes. a lot of that, and I think you know, your book makes it seem like, you know, oh, it's so it's that's okay, and that's you know, here's a language for what I was feeling and what um, you know, where it comes yeah. from, and people who, people who like we all studied and we all know about but like you know in a different context that might be that might you know connect us to them in ways that we didn't know and I think that's important you know for society and for culture to move forward and you know I think a lot of younger generations definitely I mean they're starting to now to like you know change their ways of thinking about stuff I always tell people like TikTok these TikTok kids, they say something sometimes where I'm just like, do they understand things better than I do? How <laughs> they're like 10 years younger than me. How are they, yeah. how are they getting the hang of stuff that I, you know, never did? Yeah. But like, it's like books like this that like help them, you know, recontextualize the things that they, that we never got at that age. Yeah, I, I certainly hope so. And in that sense, uh, I am hopeful. Uh, I think we are in a terrible backlash moment where gender politics uh, are concerned in terms of all these terrible laws that are being passed, both against uh, gender identity and also against 
the study of race. Yeah. Uh, I know we're in a backlash. It's that's mm -hmm. clear. I think it's one of those rare moments where we know the history that will be written with the histories written of this time. But I am hopeful. Oh, yeah. I am hopeful that um, the voices of inclusion and of uh, progress will will overcome if we just keep thinking through and we keep fighting for for these causes. Yeah, and I mean, you, yeah, it just, it, it, I hope that, that, what a great sentiment there. I just, I can't even build on that. But no, I mean, it's with those, you know, those laws and these, this backlash, one thing I am, I mean, they're trying to stop something that's already in motion. They're trying to, they're trying yes. to, they're trying to say, hey, if I put two hands up, I can stop this speeding train, but you can't, I mean, the kids, the kids are online. They're, they're, yeah. they, you can't stop that. You can't take away the, the internet from them yet. I mean, I hope they can, yeah. but like they like, and you know, they don't see that they're them doing this, them causing this big commotion is just going to make them like the kids be like, all right, I'll learn this another way. Or why are you bringing yeah. this to attention? Let me, you know, research that and look into yeah. it. And then, you know, it's going to, it's going to ultimately, I think, and I believe, and I hope, come back and come back and like kick them in the face and like a. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to say I let me you know what I'll say what I meant to say. I was like, come back and bite them in the ass, and you know, just <laughs> yeah. I was like, I don't, I, you know what? How crass do I want to be on this? But I'm like, I'll go there because yeah. it's going to, it's going to, mm -hmm. and it can only. That's the only I think way it can end for it. Yeah, because. It's already, it's already gone. It's already, you know, rolling. These kids are yeah. better. The kids are just so amazing. I just don't yeah. understand it. I don't yeah. understand it. Um, but I mean, with that, I think that's a great place to, you know, end in a, a great episode, an episode, a great, a great recording. This has been so much fun um, to Thank talk you. about and so educational too. Um do you the last thing I want to ask you is do you have anything you would like to say to you know the bookstore community and booksellers and your you know the independent bookstores you've been to and love mm -hmm. oh keep the faith is what I would say <laughs> because oh, yeah. I, I I understand from from what um what I hear and what I read that there is a resurgence and a return to the to the physical book let's put it mm -hmm. that way uh and uh I, I certainly, I try my best to support that effort with local bookstores. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I think that one other thing that I see among even my, my students is uh, that it, it's a different thing to actually, to actually read the book in a physical yeah. form, it makes a difference. And, you know, I don't know if that's just my old fashioned <laughs> attitude, but I, I, I think that, I think that um, there is this resurgence and I hope that it continues. So I hope uh, booksellers are able to survive our current, you know, crisis mm -hmm. and continue to provide, to provide uh, book clubs and mm -hmm. platforms like this one uh, mm -hmm. to encourage people to read because it's through reading that we are taught to think and to understand our relationship to the world and in more profound ways. No, I mean, 
Yeah. <laughs> can't, can't disagree with that. Cannot disagree with that. Ah, oh, thank you so much, Marlon. So that I just, to our listeners, that was Marlon B. Ross, and you can go buy his new book, Sissy Insurgencies, A Racial Anatomy of Unfit Manliness, at your local bookstore. Um, if that's in LA, come to Skylight Books. We'll have it on display. Um, but thank you again, Marlon. Um, and to our listeners, thank you so much for either listening for the first time. Please come back. We would love, we have some great episodes out there. And um, to our recurring listeners, thank you for coming back. I really appreciate all of you. You all make this worth it. Um, and to, to all of you, have a great and beautiful rest of your day. Thank you again. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.